Welcome to Between the Stacks, a podcast presented by the Athens Limestone County Public Library. Each episode brings you into the library to meet our collection of people making an impact on the community of Athens and Limestone County, Alabama. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us this afternoon for Between the Stacks at the Athens Limestone County Public Library. My name is Melinda Jones and I'm the Adult Outreach Program Coordinator. And this afternoon, I have the pleasure of having local author Jim Nesbitt with me. And he just uh, released his new book, The Dead Certain Doubt. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that and also just talk a little bit about him and living here in Athens and what he does when he's not writing books. So, all right, tell me a little bit about yourself, Mr. Nesbitt. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. You're welcome. Um... Well, I'm a longtime journalist. Came down here to work at you know, TVA Browns Ferry Nuclear Plant 12 years ago and uh, have enjoyed living here and uh, about ready to retire. So my wife uh, gets to see me more often, and uh, which may or may not be a good thing. And uh, we, we love living in Athens. We've got a nice little bungalow-style house up on the corner of Pryor and Madison. And uh, I'm the guy who used to have the um, Tennessee Orange uh, gates around the house because uh, I'm, I'm a vol for life. We're, we're a minority, but we're a vocal minority and uh, living in enemy territory. Well, both Tennessee and Alabama have had a good a good basketball season. Yep, it was a pleasure to watch them beat Duke. I used to live up there up in Raleigh and had to put up with Tar Heel mania and Blue Devil mania. Well, um, so we have this series called All Right Athens, where we've kind of asked people to maybe share their favorite memory or something in Athens that really brings them joy or that their families kind of made a tradition. Do you have anything like that that you'd like to share with us? Well, I used to when Jerry Sandlin owned Levitches. I would go there every Thursday night for a ribeye, and it kind of became... You know, just a touchstone, uh, a way to feel part of the town. I'd see people. Uh, I think what pops to mind now is uh, when I first uh, moved here, I was looking at houses here. Um, I was driving down Hobbs Street, headed toward 31, and saw this big orange disc on the side of the road, and it was the Gulf Oil disc from the restored uh, gas station. My father worked for Gulf Oil up in Philadelphia for 20-some-odd years, and so it, uh, it, it was almost like my father was pointing down to heaven saying, this is where you need to live. So um, the other thing uh, I mean, I dearly love is the Athens Car Show. I've got a 72 Olds Cutlass that my wife and I love to tool around in, and uh, I just love walking around through those old cars and wishing I had more money that I could buy two or three more. So. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit about your new book that just came out and tell us when it released. It released uh, uh, February 27th, and uh, it is the fourth in what I like to call an accidental series. I just keep writing these novels with uh, this kind of battered old uh, Dallas private investigator named Ed Earl Birch. And... Uh, Folks seem to like them. They're, they're not Sunday school books, but they're pretty uh, graphic uh, in terms of violence and sex and just, a, you know, dialogue. So uh, 
I I enjoy writing them, and uh, I'll probably keep doing a few more, and then figure out what else I want to write and get into. So, so walk us through a typical day of when you find time to write. How does that How does that work for you? Well, it's interesting because I'm getting set to retire, and I I think I'll be able to get back to a more disciplined daily, you know, writing schedule because um, that's the key. I mean, you just have to. You know, sit your butt down in the chair and keep at it. Some days it flows. Other days you're like chipping away at granite with a rock hammer. And, uh, you know, it just varies. But if you keep the discipline, keep at it, then you'll make progress. Uh, you know, while I was working at Browns Ferry, I had to grab time. And, uh, you know, there some days just don't feel like writing because you've been down at the plant for umpteen hours and you're in the middle of a refueling outage and you just don't have the energy to make that go. So I'm looking forward to, you know, getting a little more writing discipline going. Good, good. So uh, tell us about what you enjoy reading when you're not writing and working. What do you like to read? I primarily read either crime fiction. Of the, I tend to read more of the hard-boiled uh, variety. Um not a cozy kind of guy, and uh, or hit history. Uh, that seems to be the two things I dip my toe into. I used to be much more of a omnivore in terms of my reading, but I've kind of narrowed it down over the years. And uh, I spent a lot of time reading um, uh, books by my author buddies, and you know, just uh, you know, see what they're up to. It's a good way to keep plugged into that community, and uh, you know, because writing is. It's kind of a, a lone wolf road, and, uh, you know, you need to reach out and you know, stick your head up above the ground and uh, talk to people and interact so they can see what you're up to and uh, maybe share with them what you've written so that you can get a little sounding board going, and uh, otherwise you wind up being pretty isolated. So who are some of your favorite authors? Who do you enjoy reading? Uh, there's a few that are long gone, but uh, I love John D. MacDonald. Not not so much the Travis McGee series. His, his other Florida books where he writes about how sleazy, you know, Florida can be, particularly small-town Florida back in the 50s and 60s. Uh, huge fan of the late, great James Crumley, a Texas author who uh, wrote Dancing Bear and the Border Snakes. Um, I'd say... Uh, my books come pretty close to treading the same turf as his, but I'm nowhere near the writer that he was. Um, modern writers, I mean, I just got finished reading a book by my friend Baron Bircher called Reckoning, and it's, I think it's the third of his uh, Sheriff Ty Dawson uh, series. And Dawson is a sheriff out in rural Oregon in the mid-1970s. And uh, it is just absolutely lyric. I mean, Barron approaches high literature, even though he's doing a, uh, you know, a mystery. Just a hell of a writer. So that's, you know, that, that's kind of who I like to read. Okay. When did you decide that you wanted to be a writer and start writing? How did that happen for you? I had no choice. I was a storyteller at birth from a long line of storytellers. My people are... North Carolina Scots Irish hillbillies, and you know you grew up listening to the stories uh, from 
probably still in mom, uh, you know, hearing about the country cousins and various events up on the mountains. And so my parents, they really uh, instilled a keen sense of place and time in us and who our people were. So it wasn't that big of a step uh, to just start writing those stories down. Although the Irish, they have a term for writers. It's failed talkers. So um, I guess I'm second division in the storytelling game. But uh, I just have always written. And then I had an eighth grade teacher, Mary Bailey, who pulled me aside and said, you know, you really have a talent. And she called my mom and dad to come in, and only my dad could show up because they both worked. And she explained to him, you know, you really need to nurture his talent. And, of course, dad's like, I'm proud of him, but I don't know what this means. <laughs> so <laughs> um, so it's, it's something I've always done. You know, I spent a long time in journalism and always knew I was going to try to do some fiction. And I pretty much knew I was going to be doing crime fiction. As I mentioned earlier, I came in to journalism in the late 70s, early 80s, when really long format journalism was a thing. And uh, that was kind of my, I guess, my power alley. And uh, I did that well for about 20-some years before I went over to the dark side and became an editor. And so when I, you know, I kind of knew how to do longer format story structuring already and used a lot of the devices and hooks that you use in fiction writing in my journalism stories in terms of pace and description and, uh, you know, long, short sentences, you know, all that. And uh, so it when I wrote my first book, it really wasn't that big of a leap for me. Uh, and I've just kept writing them, you know, and it, it's it's like being addicted and obsessed. You can't help yourself. So I've already started to think about the next one and I've already got a title. And, you know, it's just, you know, I'm trying to give myself a rest and promote this thing for a while before I start writing the next one. But I know it's coming. Uh, how do you find the best ways to promote your book? How does that work for you? Oh, golly, help me. Ah. If if you've got a way to do that, let me know. I, I've i mastered some of the moves, but I'm not very good at it. Now, I'm, I'm sure you've had other authors tell you the same thing. I know some guys who, they're not that good at writing, but they were lifelong salesmen, and boy, they can just sell their books. You know, I envy that. But I mean, it's another thing that I think... Uh, as I retire, I'll be able to get more into. Uh, it's just there's not enough hours in the day to write seriously and then promote to the degree you need to while holding down a full-time job at one of America's largest nuclear power plants. Uh, it's more hit or miss than I'd like. Yes, it's very hard. So before I had my job here at the library, I owned a new and used bookstore in Decatur, Alabama. Yeah. And I felt the same way you felt. 
I was too busy worrying about the day-to-day task of selling books, getting authors in, and Mm -hmm. I had zero time to read. So since I no longer have my bookstore, now I have plenty of time to read, but I do do have a passion for wanting to help authors get their books out there. And one of the things I've found that helps so many people is just such a presence on social media, whether it be Facebook or Instagram, but just being out there and letting your readers connect with you and then they will just promote your book. So that is one thing I definitely would encourage you as an author to have a Facebook and an Instagram page because really once they see you interacting with them, it just escalates and they start taking pictures of themselves with your books and they, you know, their friends yeah. see it and it just passes on and on and on. So, Well, I, I do I do that quite a bit. It's just you know, what's the next step? Yes. And uh, coming up in July, I know we've asked you to participate in our Tennessee Valley Literary Festival, which is going to be a day, uh, July the 8th, of just a room full of local authors. And we are super excited about giving all of you the chance to meet your readers, sign your books, sell your books, and hopefully that will be a really good day. And we hope to see that continue to grow every year. Well, I'm, so. I'm happy to do it because I'm a firm believer that an artist, and I use that term, quotations around it, you know, really needs to be part of his or her community. And it's a good opportunity to, you know, give back. Uh, People have been supportive. uh, And I find that, you know, if you show up at an event like this, people are drawn, you know, writers fascinate them. You know, how do you do what you do? We're like, you know, we're, we're like unicorns. And, uh, and the interaction is just great for another way to get out of your bunker and meet folks and you know kind of get recharged by that. Yes, yes, that's definitely true. And I noticed early on in our conversation, you talked about the storytelling. And I was just wondering if you had ever participated in any of the storytelling events at Athens State University. Uh, no, I have not because... Um, my verbal storytelling skills have ossified so severely over the years. I don't dare get in the arena with guys who really know how to do it well. I mean, it's, you know, it truly is an art form. Uh, you know, they're doing it while talking, doing all the pacing and rhythm and things like that, that I've got the luxury of doing slowly while sitting in my lounge chair and I get to polish it up. It's not live. So, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. I'm I'm that big of a chicken. (laughs) I don't think so. So, um, tell us, do you self-publish your books? How how is that working for you? I do. And I think, uh, you know, after four of them, I've got a cadre of formatters, editors, designers, and such that, you know, I can put together a pretty good book for not an exorbitant amount of money. I'm an old school journalist, so I try to put out the best book I possibly can. In fact, I'm shocked by books that are put out by publishing houses that have typos and bad formatting and all that stuff. It's just, golly, you guys should be better than me, you would think, but I find they're not. So, And then also, I control it. I tried getting published, you know, traditionally years ago, and I just got turned off by the chase for the agent, chase for the publisher, and just started putting them out myself. Now, if that leads to a publishing deal, eh, maybe, 
but I'm, it's not something that, you know, make or break for me. Um, there's a guy named Michael Gillibo who's been here at some of the earlier uh, book events. He self-publishes, but he's also been traditionally published. And he told me one time that, uh, you know, it's, it's a fine goal to get, get traditionally published, but you got to ask yourself, do you want to go through a year or so of trying to find an agent, another six to eight months to a year of that agent finding a publisher, and then waiting two years for that publisher to get your book in in the conga line? And at my age, uh, no, I, I, I don't want to be dirt napping with Elvis when these books come out. I want to see them now. So I think I'll continue you know, self-publishing. That's what a lot of um, local authors lately that we've been interviewing, that's one thing that they share with us, too. They like the whole aspect of self-publishing just mm-hmm. because... They're not getting turned down all the time. They're not you know, having to do all the waiting to see what's next and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you get it out there, you get on to the next thing. Yes, that seems to be the way that most people are going, going these days. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your new book? Can you give us a little bit? Sure. Of it? This book is, my main character is Edward Birch. She's a cashiered homicide detective from Dallas. And working as a PI, and you know he's um, he's pretty tough. He's smart. He's ruthless. Uh, he's profane and witty, but he's not super sharp like Sam Spade or you know or super cool like Frank Bullitt, you know Steve McQueen's character. Uh, I wanted him to be more of a flawed character, and he is. He you know he's got one more marriage than I do. And uh, he's got a foot on the rail at my all-time favorite bar, Louis in Dallas, which is a real place. And and, uh, he's kind of a, he's a guy that has a code, but sometimes forgets he's got it until the chips are down. And then he usually returns to his true self. Um, So in this book, he's in his mid-50s. And he's finally gotten out from underneath some... uh, financial constraints and um, he's starting to get reflective on life and um, wants to make amends to people he's done wrong he's not in 12 step but it you know it kind of tracks that and uh, he's at the louis with a bunch of other ex-cops and they're telling war stories and it uh, brings to mind a pretty gruesome um moment that he and his partner faced where a woman was getting beaten by her lover and she chases him with a pistol and um, you know she shoots him and then she sees the two cops and then commits suicide right there subsequently ed earl he's still a cop at this point makes sure that the, the daughter of this woman gets to her grandmother makes sure she gets out of trouble um and then as he's declining and getting ready to get booted by the force, he basically turns his back on them. So this is his chance for, you know, redemption. Uh, he goes to visit the grandmother, and the granddaughter is in trouble again with even worse set of characters. You know, white supremacists, uh, Aryan Brotherhood gun runners, uh, you know, cartel killers, bent lawmen, you know. So he uh, winds up tracking her down in West Texas, which is a land that's just utterly suitable to tell stories of revenge and redemption because 
it's such a stark, harsh territory. It's you know Chihuahuan Desert, and the mountains there look like you know look like the bones of the earth have been drawn up so you can you know see them right in front of you. So for some strange reason, probably the same reason as me, he's drawn to that stark beauty. But every time he goes out there, somebody tries to kill him. So the thing I was interested in about writing this one it was the challenge of aging a character without making him a poster child for Geritol, you know. And um, he's more reflective and less self-destructive, uh, but he still feels a lot of guilt, and he's not quite sure how to deal with that except through action. Okay, it sounds very interesting. So for all of our uh, listeners and readers, Mr. Nesbitt has been so nice to donate a copy to the library. So we will get this cataloged and soon it will be available for you to check out. And we hope that readers will stop by and check out. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Between the Stacks, a podcast from the Athens-Limestone County Public Library. To hear other recordings from our Library Voices podcast series, check out our website at alcpl.org. Library Voices is also now available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.